Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are in Galatians, and it in Galatians 3.19, it begins with a question that follows on all that we've been looking at up to this. Last week, Pastor Jeff concluded 3.18, where we see that our inheritance, the promise of eternal life, the promise of what Sean just prayed about, comes not at all by the law, but only by faith, by promise. The law has nothing to do with you being forgiven and counted righteous and accepted by God. The law is nothing. And so that leads to a question, doesn't it? If you know your Bible, it's filled with law, right? And so if the law has nothing to do with this, what's the question? Why the law? Why the law? It's a good question, if it's asked sincerely. Now Paul is battling people here who are asking him that question because they're condemning him in his preaching of grace. They're saying to Paul, if you teach people that they can come to God freely without any law, then aren't you saying that it's okay for them to be lawbreakers? And so Paul is putting this section in to say, no, 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 I'm not saying the law is useless. The law has a great use, provided it's used rightly. So he's countering those insincere people who ask this question, but he's also helping us. How do we use the law? What use is the law in our life as believers who are freely accepted by God only by his freely accepting us in love? How do we use the law? I hope you want to know this. All right, so let me give you an illustration. Uh, is the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn familiar to you? Heard that name? He was a, a Russian during the time of Stalin. And he was one of the few who spoke out publicly and wrote very well against all of Stalin's murders, like tens of millions. And he was imprisoned in one of the gulags, one of the work death camps. And he wrote several uh, things uh, making everybody in the world, especially in our West, aware of what was happening there. And one of them was the Gulag Archipelago. And in it, he describes in great detail, I mean, the book is like that. I've never read the whole thing. I've never been able to make it through because it's awful. Uh, some of the things that happened in these camps. And one of the things would be when they... It, these, sometimes they worked in, let's say, mines, mining rock. And to punish or to kill, they would stack these rocks on top of people to crush them or to humiliate them in front of all of the other workers. And they just stack one and then another and then another and then another. The law has a function of something like that in our lives. To crush us. To 
destroy any hope we might have in ourselves of getting to God by ourselves. But what we do is we try to struggle underneath the rock. As they get piled higher, we, we think we can hold up in our own strength that we can keep life in ourselves by our means. And the law continues to pile on until you despair of anything in yourself, and you're left with one thing, Christ. That's a function of the law in regards to you coming to God as his child. It's to crush you. It's to destroy any hope you have in yourself. And it's the very thing that Christians will no longer tolerate at all in Christianity. It's all grace. It's all acceptance. And it's all very cheap because there's no law. The law isn't preached. The law isn't taught. The law isn't used in our personal relationships. There's no more law in the church. And so we really have no idea of the freedom that we have of what we've sung here this morning, being freed from any condemnation at all because of Christ. And so I hope this sermon does real good to you in this regard, that it would free you from any thinking you have towards your goodness. You sang it in Psalm 51. I was wondering when we were singing that we were conceived. Cooper, can you put up those lyrics? It's like the second or third stanza of when we're conceived in sin, of sinful from birth. Did you, sing, did you sing that? Did that trouble you when you sang that? I was thinking that some of you would be like singing that but not really believing it. From nature, the nature you received, sinful from my first beginning, in my mother's womb conceived. From my birth, I have been sinful. What is that telling you? There's nothing good in you. This is at the heart of the biblical Christian God-given truth of our need for Christ. From conception. Condemned, deserving of being hanged on a tree. And it's the law that teaches us this. So we need the law to show us our need for Christ. That's what Paul's going to get into. Let me read. I'm going to read verses 18 to 24 where we'll be preaching out of. And then I want to help us understand the good use of God's law. Or verse 19, sorry. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made had been made it was put in place through angels by an intermediary now just put that one in your brain we'll get there in a second angels and the law in mount sinai now an in- intermediary implies more than one but god is one is the law then contrary to the promises of god like is is the bible contradicting itself that's the question here Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Let's ask God's help. 
all wise and holy Lord, you who works all things perfect, perfectly in and of yourself, needing nothing, asking nothing of no one else, please come now and humble us. May your word be like a fire. May your word be like a hammer that breaks down our pride and shows us again how greatly we need your mercy. And so, God, that we might rejoice that you are full of mercy in your Son. So please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, let me just uh, show you the goodness of God's Word. Isn't it good how plain God makes His Word? This is one of the things I experienced this week studying this text the last two weeks is verse 19, this question, why then the law? It's so plain. God isn't trying to hide His truth from you. He's telling you the question that he's about to answer very plainly. Why the law? And There are parts of Scripture that are very difficult. Do we agree on that? Right? But most of Scripture isn't. It's very plain. He's revealing. And I wanted to start when we have a sermon that's dealing with the law, which is going to be humbling to our pride to just show you God is so gracious of putting his truth very plainly and by the help of God's spirit we can get it. And so I want to encourage you in two ways with that. Number one, make those plain things in scripture the main things. So many times in scripture we get more attracted to those things that are curious or difficult and we want to plumb those things and God hasn't given you to know them. He's given you to know the very plain things. So focus there. Second, be careful then, as you focus on the main things, to not be over-enticed with extraneous details. In 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul exhorts us by the Holy Spirit to have nothing to do with godless myths, old wives' tales, and instead train ourselves to be godly. So be careful of all of the questions of end time scenarios. Be be careful of those kind of more like mythical, fable, things that have really nothing to do with your godliness, but that you just want to focus on in order to not focus on your godliness. And so let texts like this, that plainly show how to use the law, become our focus. So, Why the law? Why the law? Up to this point in Galatians, the law has basically only been spoken of negatively. 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law. By works of the law, no one will be justified. 2.19, through the law of the gospel, I died to the law. I'm dead to the law. It's no use to me. 3.10, any who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So not only is the law nothing to us, if you try to keep yourself under the law, you're only under a curse. And then last week, Pastor Jeff's text, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai came 430 years after the promise. It doesn't change at all the promise. So why the law? If the law has only unequivocally been shown very negatively, why is there so much law in the Bible? Why is it here? It made me think, I don't even know who sings the song. War, what is it good for? Who sings that? I don't know. 
I heard inarticulate speaking there. Anyways, law, what is it good for, right? In First Tim- in Timothy 1.8, it says this, the law is good if used lawfully. So what is a lawful use of the law? What is a right use of the law? All right, kids, you've read Chronicles of Narnia, at least familiar with it? Yeah, Chronicles of Narnia? The first book that he wrote isn't actually the first chronologically or like first in the norm. The first book that he wrote, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is actually kind of the second. There was a uh, written later, the second to last book written actually comes first. But anyways, the, the first book, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, when they enter Narnia, when Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy enter Narnia, what, what do they find? What, what's there? What is the world like? It's winter, without Christmas, perpetually. It's under the oppression of the white witch. There's only doom. There's no happiness. There's only fear. That's the law. That's Lewis's look at the law. That's what it's like to be without Christ and under the law, to be perpetually in a gray, freezing no Christmas, doom and gloom, always hunted, always harassed, oppressed. And then, what happens? Aslan comes. The snow begins to melt. But just before that, Father Christmas comes, bringing gifts. And people, once again, have hope of freedom from the white witch and her oppression, freedom from law. And that coming of the Redeemer had been promised before the law. And few were still waiting for it. And so, kids, the law is like, is useful to us in showing us our need for Redeemer. The law teaches you that without Christ, you are locked up, enslaved, bound to live in a world where there's no sunshine, There's no springtime, there's only ice, there's only oppression, there's only death until Christ. So let's look at this. Look at specifically here verses 22, 23, and 24, and we'll we'll get verses 19 and 20 in a moment. But look at 22, 23, and 24. Here, Here is the clearest teaching in the Bible of the usefulness of the law to you. Scripture, note that, the law is Scripture. The law is God's inspired, eternal, holy word. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Look at verse 23. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned. 24. The law was our guardian, keeping us all wrapped up without freedom being told in great detail everything that we could and couldn't do. And that's the first half of those verses. second half is, we're imprisoned in verse 22 and, until what? So what? So that we might see that our justification is only by faith. Verse 23, held captive until what? Until the coming of faith was revealed. Verse 24, guardian until when? Until Christ came. 
So in the Bible, we have this pattern, don't we? Was the promise of eternal life given before or after the law? Sorry. Before. That's what Pastor Jeff showed you, 430 years before. If you want to even get more technical, in the garden, 315, Genesis 315, it was given. So the promise came first, right? And how was, by Abraham, the promise received? Was it by Abraham getting circumcised and Abraham taking the Lord's Supper and Abraham never lying? Or was it just by Abraham going, all right, just by faith, right? So then you have, you have promise received only by faith and then law. So the law functions after the promise for a time to do what? What's the purpose of all of that law? To do what? Show you your need for Christ. To show you that all that you have is a heart and a body given to breaking it. To prove to you that you can't bring anything to God except your need. It imprisons you. It enslaves you. Why? Because when you meet the law, thou shalt not lie, right? I'm kind of paraphrasing. What What do you do? You lie. You're enslaved to it. Kids, when the Bible says, honor your father and mother, what does your heart want to do? Yeah, right, Stanley. Why? Because your nature is bent towards breaking God's law. So every law you read in the Bible shows you again and again and again and again and again and again that your nature loves to break it. You hate God and his law. You despise it. It's imprisoned you. The law hasn't imprisoned you. It's showing that you are imprisoned. The law is good. We're not. Do you get that? How many of you have ever been addicted to something? I mean, like, really addicted. That's what we are in nature. We love that which will kill us. Sin. And God has given you his law to show you that. Why? Why do you need that? Because you're proud. Because you're so proud and self-righteous and self-sufficient. But do you believe that? Do you believe that? So the law terrifies you. That's the purpose before Christ. That's the purpose in regards to your salvation. It's to terrify you. Now look back up now at verse 19. This is a strange verse. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions. We've just covered that. But listen to this. Until the offspring of, should come. Now we, we've got that. That's Christ. But it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What is that reference to? What? What is that? It's kind of an oblique, it's kind of a less clear reference to Exodus 19 and 20 when God gave the law to Moses. Now, what it's showing is, did God himself come and directly give the law to the people? No. He gave it through Moses, right? But there's another, there's other beings that we don't typically understand are present there, that the law came through first before Moses. So turn, if you would, back to Exodus 19. 
That little reference in Galatians back to Exodus is functioning in two ways for us that it's very helpful for us to see. All right, just to place us where we are here in Exodus, this is God's people, His beloved, adopted, chosen people, just freed from slavery, given God's incredible grace, and now they're before God on Mount Sinai, waiting to receive from God his commands of how they should be his people. And look at verse 12. It starts with warnings. Set limits all around the mountain, saying to the people, take care, don't go up or touch it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Verse 13, no hand shall touch it, or he'll be stoned or shot. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up. So it's, it's already setting this kind of terrifying atmosphere, if you will. And it continues. Look at verses 16 to 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick clouds, a very loud trumpet, and everybody trembled. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Now how do the people react? How do the people react? Look at verses, look at chapter 20 verses 18 to 21. So that's the setting. Don't touch the mountain. It's on fire, clouds, trumpets. People are terrified out of their wits. And in verse 18 of chapter 20, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. They, they couldn't have access to God. He terrified them with his law. They, they stand far off, and they cry out to Moses, you speak to us, and we'll listen. But don't let God speak to us. All right, where, where is your mind going right now? I wonder, is it going to the absolute shallowness of our worship? We have no fear of God at all. Why? Because we have no law. We don't believe that God is a just judge who executes the unrighteous. And as Pastor Mark preached a couple weeks ago, that he hates not only sin, but those who love to sin. And that all who love to sin are cursed with death. The people get it. They're acting rightly. I don't want God to speak to me. Now, in going back to Galatians 3.19, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. We don't have time to go to the other passages, but there's passages uh, in other places in the Bible, Hebrews being one of them, that talk about the fire and so on being angels. If you look at any kind of a Jewish interpretation of Exodus 19 and 20, they all teach that the fire, the, the cloud were God's angelic heavenly hosts, angels. And so Paul is following along with that. God gave the law from God through angels to Moses to the people. And, and what is that kind of giving of the law doing to the people? 
Why does Paul reference it here? What's the effect that the law and the giving of it has on the people? Terrifies them. They're out of their wits in the fear of God. And so Paul is putting our minds back there in order that we might understand the function of the law, a function, a main function of the law in regards our need for Christ. Do you fear God? Do you have any fear of God? Do you ever tremble before Him? If not, it's likely because you think that the law has no place at all in your life anymore. You, you can't bother to be made aware of how unrighteous you are in light of God's holiness. How about when Jesus came on the Sermon on the Mount, which was kind of like a, a second Mount Sinai? You remember that? What did Jesus do with the law? Well, let's look there. Turn to Matthew 5. I just I want to show you this because maybe you'll be thinking in your brain, well, that's Old Testament. That's Moses. That's Israel. I'm a Christian. I don't have the law. How does Jesus handle it? How does Jesus handle the law? He's a far greater Moses. He's here on the mountain. This is a second Mount Sinai. This is Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Son of God. And does he come to the people saying, don't worry about the law. It's going to be okay. I'm here. Free grace. All are welcome. Come as you are. Come on in, everybody. Is that how he preaches his sermon? Huh? Does he come to the people saying, I know all that Moses said. Just forget about it. We're all good. Peace and love, man. Is that how he does it? Let's look. 517. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass, not a, not a dot of an eye, cross of a T kind of thing, will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, who's the I? This is Jesus. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and what should that do to you? Who can go to heaven then? I have no hope. My righteousness can't exceed anybody's righteousness. Let's keep going. It doesn't get easier. He doesn't make it easier. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Any murderers here? Right? You're law keepers, right? I can be righteous before that externally, can't I? Look at what he does. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And what's that supposed to do to you? I do that all the time. I get angry with people unrighteously, unjustly all the time. 
all the time. This morning, you irritated me, some of you. A bunch of... We do this all the time, people. What is that law supposed to do to you? Just crush you. He's making it harder. This loving, gracious guy who's going to come, he's making it harder. Should we keep going? Look at lust. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery in verse 27. You shouldn't bed somebody who isn't your wife or husband. I'm good. I haven't done that. Right? I'm righteous. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. (laughs) I don't do that all the time. Right? Yeah, I do. Don't we lust? Aren't we full of it? What is he doing? He's bringing the weight of the law. He is. Christ is. Why? To humble our pride, to show us our need, to drive you to his grace. But you have no idea what his grace is if you do not feel the terror and weight of the law of God in his holiness. That's what Paul is saying, back to Galatians, in this text. That's what the law is for. It's a prison. It's slavery. Why? Because every time you meet the law with your sinful heart, you realize, yeah, I haven't murdered somebody, but I get unrighteously irritated with my kids all day long. Yeah, I haven't bedded somebody who isn't my spouse, but man, it doesn't take much for me to want to do that. In fact, I often watch things on the television with that in order to feel that, you know, uh, lustfulness in me. That's how degraded I am. Who will save me? That's what the law is supposed to do. It's Romans 7. Turn there real quick, please. This is the purpose of the law. This is to be our daily experience as believers. Look at verse 14 to the end. Bear with me here. For we know that the law is spiritual. Right? The law is from God. The law is good. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I'm enslaved. I'm imprisoned. I don't understand my own actions. Hey, guys, believers, you get that, right? Isn't Paul so helpful here? When Manny and I do premarital counseling, we spend most of our time trying to convince this very happy, engaged couple that this is going to be their next until death do them part. The person they're living with is out of their mind and vice versa. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Because we're Christians. We want to obey God. We want to please our Father. But we don't. We do the opposite constantly. Look at verse 18. This is a conclusion. I, I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my body, in me. That's what the law does. It brings you finally to agree with God that there's nothing good in you. The law does that. I have the desire to do it right, but not the ability. I don't do the good I want. The evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Is that you? That's what the law is meant to do in your life. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. 
right? In our renewed, born-again souls, we want to do God's law. And then verse 23, but I see in my members, in this body, another law, waging war, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what the law is supposed to do to you. But we won't talk about it. Why won't we talk about it? Because we want more people in the pews and we want more money in the coffers. Because we don't want to pay the price for offending you. This is why parents won't discipline their children. Because they're more afraid of what the child thinks about them than they are about his, his or her eternal soul. We won't bring the law to bear on our children. We won't make them eat vegetables that they don't want to eat. We'll make them a whole other meal. Because we're so soft as a culture. We're so stinking soft. Kids, do not ask your mom to prepare another meal. Goodness. Mom, don't do that. Unless they have like an allergy that's going to kill them. Make them eat it. They'll be better for it. Their wife, if they're a boy, will thank you. Don't let them be picky eaters. There are no such thing as picky eaters born. That's totally, I'm totally going on it. The law is meant to make you cry out, who will deliver me? Why does he cry out like that? Because he's lost all hope in himself. And what's the answer in verse 25? Thank to do that. To God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what the law is meant to do. That's what Paul's doing in Galatians 3. And so God's word, we sang it this morning, is like a fire. It's like a hammer. It is to leave us a pile of rubble. To see that there's nothing good in us. And so, will you have faith to let the law do this work in you? Will you have faith to let the law bring you to your despair, to your complete and utter need? That's all that God wants from us. All he wants is nothing in my hands I bring, only to Christ and his cross do I cling. That's what the law does for you. So the law is good, right? We need the law, correct? We need a time of confession every Sunday. We need, before we take the Lord's Supper, to be exhorted to examine ourselves. We need a spouse who consistently makes us aware of our sin and shortcomings. We need children in whom we can see as a mirror our sin that they're committing that they got from us. We need friends who are picky. We need constantly a reminder of our great need for Christ. Now look at verse 20 and we'll close with this. This is probably the most difficult line in this. An intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. So the intermediary is talking about how the law was given. Remember, the law was given from God to angels, to Moses, and then to the people. But then it says, but God is one. It's contrasting how the law was given through, passed through several hands, and law, or the gospel is given directly from God to us. And the gospel promise of salvation through the promised Son of God, through Jesus, depends on God's character. God is one. God will not change in his promise. God will not change in his promise to get you to heaven. God will not change in his unchanging character. He is one. He is unchanging. 
and basing your acceptance with him, not on you at all, but only on Christ. He's trying to tell you that the gospel is very sure. Though the law terrifies you, though if you look at the law too long, you'll realize that you will never go to heaven. God's promise of salvation in Christ is unchanging. It's sure. It's solid. It's a rock, a mountain. It is not shifting sand. It's solid. It's stable. It's good news that will always be good because God does not change. So this is meant to reassure you. Yes, brothers and sisters, the law is terrifying. The law continues to show you that you're a wretched person. But the promise of salvation through faith in Christ is based on God's unchanging character and so will never change. So are you worried about your salvation? Look to Christ. Are you concerned that your sin is too often and too much? Look to Christ. You continue to do that which you don't want to do. Look to Christ. Are you spiritually acting in this world? Look to Christ. Are you spiritually apathetic and just can't find any vigor for the Lord? Look to Christ. Are you under a weight, under a sorrow, under a depression? Look to Christ. It's the whole point of it. Let's pray. Father, please help us with this. We find it very difficult to keep these things in their place. We often look at the law when we need to be looking at Christ, and sometimes we look at Christ when we need to see the awfulness of our sin and looking at the law. We constantly either just totally disregard the law or only pile the law on us so that we despair of your goodness at all. And so, Father, help us. Who will save us? Would you please, by your Spirit, work within us a humility to know that all we have is Jesus? Would you work within us faith to let the law do its good work of causing us to despair of any goodness in ourselves? we might see your great mercy and goodness in the gift of your Son. And so, God, please help us with this. Please, God, reassure us of the solidness of the gospel and the promise. We might be reassured of your eternal goodness toward us in your Son. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen.